0: Start with a sound check. Ooh. <laughs> Is that too loud? I get some nods that that's too loud. I think I can do about this. How's that? Is that any better? It didn't sound any different to me. Okay. Anybody really needed to come down? <laughs> okay. So tonight, I'm going to talk about the second foundation of mindfulness, which is putting the intimacy of our mindfulness practice on something in Pali, this ancient Indian language. The word for it is vedana, and this is a a word worth learning. Vedana, is the part of every moment experience from the moment you're born, to the moment you pass away, and whether that experience, the felt sense of being in your experience, has a pleasant tone, has an unpleasant tone, or has a neither pleasant nor unpleasant tone, which we shorten into the word neutral. And there really isn't a good English word to translate vedna into, because it's it's very specific. It's the pleasantness of a moment. It's the unpleasantness itself of a moment. It's the neutrality or the lacking of pleasure or unpleasantness of a moment. And it's that simple, but it's that specific. So one thing that our nervous system has developed is not just the ability to sense our environment through the eyes, through the ears, through the body, through the nose and the tongue, and then sensing it through our mind's ability to perceive and hold concepts. But there is a tonality that our nervous systems add to every moment of whether the moment is experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And when not seen, this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral tone becomes the the smallest snowball that starts snowballing into our greatest suffering, our most complex suffering, is not actually seeing the pleasantness of a moment, the unpleasantness of a moment, or the neutrality of a moment. And it's very easy to stop a snowball when it's the size of a marble. It's very easy to stop a snowball when it's the size of a basketball. But if it starts picking up momentum, it's harder and harder to stop. But at the core of many of our dramas can be felt, when you feel down into them, part of what is driving the drama in our life. And therefore the suffering, the confusion, the agitation, the desperate plans, the confident plans that fall apart, the insecurity of not knowing what comes, is that it will have a Vedna quality, and we will never get control over this Vedana quality. So bringing mindfulness to this takes some work because it's not where our attention wants to go. But not seeing Vedana, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality, will possibly begin a snowballing reactivity that is very hard to untangle and stop the momentum of because there's a lot of inflammation that grows around this. And this ends up being a core psychological uh, element of Buddhist psychology is the fact that our nervous system produces pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality. So... That's what we're going to talk about tonight, but I want to point towards a possibility and then show how not being mindful or being mindful of Vedana would free us or would liberate us. So there's a point in practice where usually against our, some of our habits, we start relaxing into what's actually happening and putting up with a, a, a light bit of influence over what's happening. We come in with good intentions, but we can't control what happens in a sit. We can't control what happens to our mind. We can't control the sounds. We can't control the way the body's gonna feel. Can't control if we're sleepy. After a while, we realize we don't actually have to gain control to be well. And there's an attitude of approaching, you know, if there's influence, I'll take it. But if I can't actually influence happening, I can at least take out the suffering and just take it down. This is what is happening. And I'm learning not to suffer when I'm sleepy, when I'm doubtful, when I'm elevated, when I'm uh, tired. I'm having beautiful experiences when I'm having difficult experiences. And what I love about a month long is that again, it goes against some deeper part of us that we're trying to awaken is that we all end up giving into this stream at some point, and then we fight it, but we realize the fight can't win. And so many of us over and over and over Relax into the stream of what's happening. And as you get more accustomed to that, as you build faith in that and seeing that isn't a tragedy that you can't get control, that there's another kind of well being that begins to come up in us where we have faith in our ability to stream through a greater range of experiences without it causing agitation, confusion, stress, disappointment. And that approach has no upper limit. And that ends up being what liberates us. Is not that we finally end up having control, but we relax into the stream and we feel we have the tools to stream through whatever arises, enough faith to relax into the stream, enough wisdom, relax into the stream and we start streaming more and more. Now this streaming also comes with responsiveness. And so we can be responsive to what's happening, but even there, we have to understand there's a limit of influence that we can have upon the world. So we, we settle for streaming and influence but we don't add suffering if we don't get our way. And that's what the maturing is in this practice, is to become part of the stream. And actually it gets named as a stage of liberation, is to be a stream enterer. And there are different ways to conceptualize that, and we don't have to talk about that tonight, but like to get that felt sense that Drew you into a month long, and maybe you had ideas of getting control or mastering your mind or getting some of those good sits people talk about that you tasted once. But that won't be where your long-term well-being is cultivated, getting some, some good sits. It will be having pleasant experiences arise and then having them pass. And then being vulnerable, as JD talked about last night. And we don't know what's going to come. Just because you had a difficult time doesn't mean you're owed a good time. And just because you have a good time doesn't mean that's now your new normal. And so while we do try to uh, cultivate pleasantness, happiness, there is a well being in doing that, there is some wisdom in doing that. We actually have a greater capacity to rise and descend, to go left and right, as the stream of events unfold. When I was younger, I spent a lot of time on the great rivers of Canada, flowing into the Hudson Bay. And it was amazing to me, being a land walker, what it was like to spend a whole summer on a river, on many rivers, And there is another way of being where you can't stand and then take the ground for granted underneath you. That water, especially rivers, always have shifting currents. And so it's a constant intuitive listening, but it draws you very intimately into the present. And what you can say is, I actually don't have to figure out how to get from here to the Hudson Bay. This river figured it out tens of thousands of years ago I just have to be on the river and follow it. And the river will do most of the work of carrying me the whole way. So I want your heart just to tap into that. You have confirmed that you can do that, which is why you had faith to come on a month long retreat. But it also means opening up further than we have before to feel life at a much more intimate level. And that's what's going to mature here, whether you like it or not, is your own liberation. (laughs) But it goes against a deep instinct that we are all hoping it will get more pleasant or that we'll have more tools to fend off or solve the unpleasantness. And that the neutrality won't be so boring. So it ends up being a deep instinct to work with our unconscious relationship to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So we have the image of water. And you can imagine water in several in one glass of a shape. And I can pour it into a glass of a different shape. So I could use a, a short glass and a tall thin glass, pour the water in. The water doesn't resist. The water doesn't hold its old shape. When it's in this shape, it takes that shape, but it doesn't harden to that shape. And then whenever poured, you can sneak up on water when it's not looking and pour it into a different glass. But it's the nature of water to be adaptive. So you can't sneak up on water and get it holding its form, unless it's ice, but we're talking about liquid water we actually can practice in a way that that's our unconscious go-to, is to keep the mind in a liquid form so that it's very intimate with the present moment but doesn't try to fixate on anything. And that takes some training. And we actually can train our hearts to be more and more oriented that way. Another image that has worked for me has come in thinking about uh, a record needle resting on an old vinyl record, that because the record needle has no preference, it gets to play all the music there is. And the way it does that is it just rests intimately and vibrates with the record right underneath it. And in doing that, it can play all the music that ever could be recorded. It can play silent, it can play intense music, fast tempo, slow tempo, any genre of music, this same record needle can play all of it because it has learned to rest intimately without preferences and vibrate just on what's below it. And That ends up being what any meditation we do, like breathing meditation, without preferences, be a record needle resting on an in-breath just because that's what's happening in that moment. And then an out-breath, and you feel the out-breath because that's what's actually happening in that moment. And then that's what mindfulness is, kind of, as a metaphor. is like a record needle resting, but it doesn't become monotonous. It actually plays intimately all the music that that record needle could rest in. And it does it so beautifully because it rests just upon what's underneath it. So all the things that we want to feel, great love, great peace, the way we're going to meet our losses, the way we're going to deal with our sorrows, is actually let mindfulness rest inside the stream of what's happening and develop that mindfulness that doesn't have preferences and choices kicking the needle around I'm resting in it. And then a flash of anger. I was in it and then it passed a flash of anger, but then it settled into resentment, a flash of anger and then some sorrow, a flash of anger. And then I, and it woke me up and we don't know what's going to come downstream, but we rest in each moment. And then the beauty of the world plays through us. Unlike a record needle and unlike water, there is room for choice and response. But the profundity of mindfulness is to rest intimately and trust the flow. And the nice thing again about a month long is that we will hold to our preferences and that's exhausting. And then we will let go of our preferences, which could be depressing until you realize there's another kind of well-being that, that comes from not clinging to your preferences. and The preferences can be helpful, but the tight relationship to your preferences actually doesn't make you more secure. It actually brings in suffering and agitation. So that's what streaming is, and you all experience streaming. And again, It often is not our instinct coming from a worldly life where we don't trust streaming. We trust production, having goals, working towards them, being resolute on our goals, having errands lists, and applying our will. So it's not often cultivated in worldly living that we should be resting in the stream. But it is one of the beautiful things that arises out of mindfulness, and then we learn how to integrate that. So that there is choice and response, but we also have this underlying intimacy with life. And we've learned everything that happens to you is a learning of something that happens to humans and whether we can deep take that moment to be more intimate with what it means to be human. The boredom, the creativity, the peacefulness, the agitation. That's all human realm. We want mindfulness like a butter in an old... English muffin to like soak into every nook and cranny. We want mindfulness to find the nooks and crannies and soak into them. So that's going to happen on a month long. and it's the beautiful invitation of a month long is to soak in like that. And that's where we, if you can come to be aware of Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant and neutral, There is what for many people is an unconscious fork in the road, but we can become more conscious. Do I want to stay with streaming, or do I want to start resisting? Now, again, you can stream, and there's still room for choice to how you navigate the stream. But it could be that before you're even aware, the mind goes into a habitual reactivity around vedna without us knowing it. By the time we're aware, because there's a lot of agitation, there's already some momentum built up in us and some habits built up. So this ends up being critical to your well-being to bring mindfulness to Vedna, And I'll tell you, the mind doesn't want to do this. So this is why you need this much support to build momentum to make that insight. But then when you make that contact, the mind says, oh my God, that was so helpful. And it thanks you after the fact. But it doesn't want to be intimate with unpleasant experiences. Actually doesn't want to be that intimate with pleasant experiences. How many of you have cooked an incredible meal and invited people over for that incredible meal? It's not actually the most pleasant thing that people really slow down and expand the pleasantness by slowing down, just by socializing and distraction, you can blow right through a beautiful meal. So we're not, our own mind thinks it wants happiness and pleasure, but it actually dissociates a little around it because it would take some intimacy and some vulnerability to really be there with pleasure. So these are the three things that happen around Vedana, three common responses. There is an unconscious resistance to unpleasant Vedana. And we have to catch up with the fact that we've had an unconscious resistance to unpleasant Vedana. So that's why when we come to this retreat, we're already working with a mind that has unconsciously built it habits and tendencies to resist what is experienced as unpleasant. So by the time you're even aware that there's something unpleasant happened, your mind already is applying a strategy of resentment or fear or anger or irritation, trying to get rid of or control or manage the unpleasantness. So that's something, it's a clue that if it's unpleasant, there's probably some resistance going on. If it's pleasant, there's probably a draw towards it, a magnification of its potential for your happiness, and a kind of enchantment around it. That's the unconscious relationship to pleasant experiences. And maybe more More powerful is the way that we neglect neutral experiences. So as the mind gets familiar with something, it tends to experience it more and more neutrally. And in that neutrality, it fogs out. And then it starts looking for something more pleasant or managing something unpleasant. So when things are experienced as neutral, the unconscious mind either takes unconscious downtime or it says, this isn't worth my uh, investment, these neutral experiences. I got a lot of problems and neutral doesn't help me with my problems. I got to find something pleasant to offset all the hard parts of my week or my month. Or I got to anticipate these unpleasant experiences and strategize around them. So we tend to neglect neutral experiences, which is why it is so hard to stay with the breath unless you're experiencing it as pleasant. But the ordinary breath, the familiar breath, the breath that isn't that different from other breaths you have, it itself won't draw your attention to it. And from that, you can watch. First breath, very important, all commitment. Second breath, familiar, but you're in the zone. Third breath, kind of like the other two, you're already taking notes on it, I'll just go ditto. (laughs) Fourth breath, not even write the word ditto, it's just those little marks. Fifth breath, I could entertain a thought and totally track whatever was new about this breath. (laughs) Because this breath is so like the other breath that I actually find I have a lot of bandwidth for other things. And I was like in, out, in, out, in, out. And I could use this time tracking the in and out, although it's not actually synchronized anymore, but that doesn't really matter because it's basically in and out. Very familiar territory, in, out, in, out. It's not even aligned with breathing anymore, but like, like that would matter. In, out, in, out. I wonder how or what happened when? And then you're like, oh, wait a second. Oh, I was really lost. Where's the breath? There's the breath. Critical. In, out, ah. There was the start. There was the finish. Beautiful. Next one, very like the last one. Next breath, ditto. Next breath. I got, some, I got some free space in my mind. What's for lunch? Wonder how often they do serve that Indian meal because that was my favorite. Got to go earlier next time to get the chutney. Oh. I was like, yeah, I got tons of free time. I'm just doing breath. Like, ah, oh, i done it again. How did that happen? And then you don't even go back to the breath. You're just like, ditto, breath, super important. Chutney, also important. <laughs> And you, you, you're laughing, but that's your mind. And that's really what's happening while you're watching your breath. Because it's neutral. It just doesn't come with its own currency to the mind that is really trying to win at its happiness from conventional means. Which is why when you're attending the breath, that's mostly your mind's determination and patience and practice. What that does is that begins to soothe the irritated, exhausted, ungrounded mind. That mind heals. And then the breath suddenly starts to look beautiful, but the breath actually hasn't changed much. What's changed? is a mind that's not inflamed and scattered with all these plans and strategies. It's relaxed some, it's collected some, it's given up on chasing and holding on to pleasantness and fearing unpleasantness. It rests in the neutral and then the neutral becomes beautiful. The neutral becomes vivid. Painful experiences, you start to have some capacity to be in places where before there would have been automatic reactivity. And in the space of that reactivity, that's like I'm actually with myself. This is the first time I've been with myself when there's been unpleasantness. And in that ability, I can meet myself compassionately. I have a certain ability to breathe with myself in places that have been too painful before. And I can feel what a relief that is. I no longer have to have primary and secondary plans to keep myself from feeling this loneliness or this old fear, these hard memories, these worries. I can actually start breathing in them, and they're unpleasant. But now I have capacity to breathe in, and that capacity to be with the unpleasant is where empathy comes in, it's where compassion comes in, it's where understanding comes in. So <clears throat> if you got a splinter in your hand, the whole area could get red and inflamed. And you could keep putting topical ointments on the whole area, trying to help the inf- inflammation go down. But if you actually find the splinter and pull it out, that whole area can now heal. And if you don't get the splinter out, The place is easy to inflame. We have a lot of inflammation around Vedana because our unconscious mind is using low-grade consciousness to basically keep us alive with low-grade happiness. That's our default software. But it leads to a lot of exhaustion, limited capacity it leads to a lot of experiences we don't know how to meet directly so then we fear them it meets it leads to that low-grade consciousness means that if it's pleasant we have to hoard it we have to start collecting pleasantness because it's the only thing that seems to help us when we're not that happy otherwise but if you do what the ordinary mind wouldn't have figured it out, which is just why it's so good to have a Buddha come through and map out something that our ordinary minds wouldn't have figured out. If you can breathe with unpleasantness, not an unpleasantness that's actually harming you, that calls for a compassionate response. But if you can find an experience that is unpleasant, but you have enough perspective to say, oh, here's an unpleasant experience. I'm going to go to the Vedana gym and I'm going to do my repetitions. This is unpleasant. There is reactivity. I do not want this. My preferences say get rid of this. There's a lot of old habit arising to push against this unpleasant experience. And I'm going to start breathing with it and lowering that reactivity. And that's its own development, learning to breathe down old reactivity that's trying to help you, but it leads to an old place, which is usually not that happy. It's just old unconscious behavior trained at a long, long time ago. So breathing down your own reactivity, being able to feel more deeply into an unpleasant experience, and then seeing I can shift my body if it's a body pain. I've tried shifting. It hasn't helped yet. So I'm going to breathe a little more with this unpleasantness. Maybe I need to lie down. Maybe I need to walk and stretch my body. There are options of response. The funny thing is you can actually do a lot of work just on not scratching an itch. So on my first retreat, someone said, don't scratch an itch. And you know it's not gonna hurt you, but you'll watch very compulsive habits come up. I was like, okay, next time there's an itch on my nose, I won't scratch it. And the first thing I did is I scratched it (laughs) because that was the unconscious habit. It's like, oh, I have to try a little harder than that. How do I not scratch? Then the hand went up and I had to put it down. And then I didn't scratch the itch, and I watched my mind go like, oh my God, this is not possible. Like, I thought a 45-minute sit was too much, but like every second of here is desperate. And I was like, really? It's just an itch. And it's like, no, no, this, this cannot stand. And I watched my hand keep going up, and then my mind started agitating and agitating. I've never not scratched an itch. This is intolerable. And then my mind got really desperate, And it started as like, I've got to leave. And I was just throwing out anything to change the fact that my nose was itching. I think that's unpleasantness and a lot of compulsive behavior, which is solved by just scratching. And I don't even have to see what's going on there. But So you don't have to like hurt your body sitting to do this work. You know, take care of your body. It's a beautiful thing. We want to have a good, healthy relationship with our bodies. But there are a lot of things that kick up a reactivity. And then, out of habit, we believe the story around the reactivity. And then it justifies our view. It's like, I heard about unpleasant bathing, but this is not that. Someone is breathing too loud. (laughs) Or... It is a little too cold in here and it's unpleasant, but no, it shouldn't be this cold in here. So this is not one of those things I breathe with. This is something I write a note to the managers, sign it meta, so make sure. But I got to get the point across that I'm disappointed. It's like, is that unpleasant and should I breathe with it? It's like, no, 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 that's unpleasant. It shouldn't be like this. Reality shouldn't be like this. Like, yeah, but maybe I could use this as a breathable, teachable moment. It's like, no, (laughs) no, it's like, so I have a a soft spot for um, peanut M&Ms. And there's something very young and compulsive and they're in my mouth before I even stop. Like, is this a pleasantness I should breathe with? Or is this a pleasantness that I should consume? It's like, oh, consume, consume. <laughs> We've tried this before. It's always good. <laughs> Never regret it. Just consume. And that is basically true out in the world. Never regretted it. So I have a pretty unconscious relationship. to, like, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Yeah, I know about that. So the hand goes out. Many go in and I'm chewing. But I'm also so used to them I don't stop and actually appreciate them. And so there is this kind of unfulfilling reaching for them. It's like, I, they, sh- they should be better than this. I, I'm eating a lot of them, but I know that they're better than this. But I don't actually stop and taste them. I'm in some kind of compulsive, low-grade awareness that's pushing a lot of them in my mouth. And I need a, basically a peanut this big covered in chocolate this big in my mouth, for my mind to go, wait a second, that's worth paying attention to. So there's kind of this unconscious grazing that happens, and I don't interrupt it, because out in the world, that's what happiness looks like. It's pleasant, and I just try to consume as much as I can before I feel sick. And then I look for something else, but note to unconscious self, graze on the peanut peanut M&M's because that's a win. So I now have to track that. I have to track that consciously. It gets, all of us are different in how will, what is pleasant to us. So to work with Vedna, one, you have to kind of remember that this is something to do it's not a steady practice so you can't we still work with the body and probably it's important to find vedana and in your body and see if you already have unconscious drives in your body of stress of holding patterns unpleasantness that's bound with a clinging or an aching the body will sometimes have an unpleasantness the muscles will grip around it it will ache and then go numb, and that's an unconscious strategy around body pain. Grip around it, that after a while becomes numb, and then we don't have to consciously deal with it, although there's still pain and gripping. When you come here to retreat, you're just by not distracting yourself, those things start to appear in your body, you breathe with them, at some point they thaw, it's usually about the point where you're willing to breathe with them. Watch out for that strategy, because like, I was willing to breathe with you, and you didn't go away. I accepted you. You were supposed to go. Like, no, 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 you have to accept it, whether it goes or not. And that usually allows it to soften, and then that often does cause a shift. So around unpleasant Vedana, around these three Vedanas, look at these three reactivities, Start with the body, because this is a good grounding mechanism to be in our bodies. And it's one of the reasons that we're not more embodied, is the body is an incredibly honest field. The mind is a conjurer. It conjures up all sorts of enchantments. The body will tell you how it's doing. And we often can't sustain our fantasies with such an honest part of our experience, the body. So we go in, we breathe, we're aware we have a body. And in that, we have to feel unpleasantness in the body. We'll feel neutrality in the body, and we'll feel pleasantness in the body. And we'll see that those all shift. Around the pleasantness, there will be an unconscious desire to cling to it. So if you have that good sit, and it's good because it's pleasant... And because of that, you hope you're in some new territory of practice because there was pleasantness in your body. You'll start to get enchanted by it and try to grab onto it. It doesn't mean that we're, we're any further along by rejecting pleasant experiences, by embracing unpleasant experiences. But that can be a little bit of our training, but you don't want to actually hurt yourself. But the idea is that eventually you can stream through. And there's been some development of your skill of streaming through and finding there's unpleasantness, but I stream through. There's unpleasantness, mostly streaming, but I was responsive. Respon- I felt the call to be responsive. You're more likely to have less suffering if you can breathe with something while you're responding to it, seeing if the response works, doesn't work, but still underlying, you have an ability to breathe with these three Vedanas. And the clue is, neutral experiences, you can easily watch your interest evaporate. And the unconscious tendency to neutral is ignorance. Like, you're probably all not really getting to know the white of these walls a lot better. Maybe when you first walked in here, it's like, oh, nice room. Then it became familiar, Then it didn't hold your attention as much. So neutral things tend not to draw our attention in. So to train against that, you might want to see around neutral experiences, how can I support myself to have mindful intimacy with neutral experiences? around pleasant experiences. don't have to run from them or reject them. But am I being enchanted by it? Am I trying to possess it? Am I trying to stretch it, prolong it? Am I trying to own it? Am I trying to multiply it? Or is it just pleasantness passing through? And around unpleasantness, there's some reactivity to control it, manage it, get rid of it, keep it contained at least. So when we know what the other responses are, naming the Vedana can be helpful. So one thing you might try as a training is since we're mostly body-focused at this point in the retreat and probably through the rest of the retreat having some relationship deepening into body, you could name where your attention is and whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We have these six sense doors. So you mostly, you could say breathing neutral. In, out, in, out, breathing neutral. In, out, in, out, breathing pleasant. In, out, in, out, breathing unpleasant. What's unpleasant about it? Like, it's not satisfying. It's, I want something else. Isn't there something? Like, oh, what is the unpleasantness in that moment? You can say, breathing in and out, unpleasant. And that begins mindful connection to actually take interest in the Vedna you're having. You could be in your body and then see your mind has wandered. So, breathing, sound, pleasant back to the breath. Then sights, unpleasant, back to the breath. One of the reasons we get so lost in thoughts is thought tends not to be neutral unless you're really kind of in a tranquil, checked out space. And then your mind may not conjure up vivid thoughts. But one of the reasons we tend to hop on the thought train is that it's a little more entertaining than the breath train. So we're on the breath train, and then this party train shows up and it's like all your fantasies on one train. Wow, let's go there. I think, like, ooh, I am supposed to stay on the breath train. I'll get you at the next next station. Or every fear and every self-criticism. Like, well, that's at least interesting versus this breath, which was so neutral. You'll see yourself choose drama over neutrality, which is also interesting. Why is that? an unconscious relationship, why don't we know how to take refuge in neutrality? And ultimately we don't take refuge in any one of these three vednas. They come and go and it's just to take interest in them, see how they operate. We have a whole month to get interested at these vednas being part of our experience. So the Buddha said, just as various winds blow in the sky, winds from the east, west, north, and south, dusty winds, dustless winds, cold, hot winds, mild, strong, so too various vednas arise. So just as we can't control the weather, you cannot end up controlling vedna. Unpleasant vedna will blow through all of us. Pleasant vedna will visit all of us. Neutral Vedana will visit all of us. So can we actually find there's a well-being that doesn't get entangled in pleasant Vedana, doesn't get entangled in unpleasant Vedana, doesn't get entangled through ignorance and boredom with neutral Vedana? So that's deepening and starting and being convicted with our Vedana practice. I used to be uh, in the material scientist sciences and studied physics. One thing I loved about that realm of education is they would say, this is what other people have studied and this is what they've found. Just because centuries of people have discovered this, you don't have to then take it on. We're actually going to give you laboratory experiences where you get to see it for yourself. So in fourth grade once, I measured the temperature of boiling water with my own thermometer and saw, yep, right when the water boils, that's the temperature. So I didn't have to take my teacher's word for it. I could actually do the experiment. And there was a much more convicted relationship to learning chemistry or biology or physics by actually seeing what wisdom there had been, but not just having to memorize it, but doing the experiments yourself and then seeing. So the Buddha left out a lot of breadcrumbs and then said, actually, you have to do these experiments. It's not enough that I can describe them and you can conceive that they're true. You actually have to come in, do these experiments and then see for yourself. There is an incredible amount of well-being and it's on a different axis. It's not based on pleasure. It's based on the mind that's not ensnared in pleasure. There is a well-being that comes up through our system, not because it's learned to block unpleasantness. How can there be well-being that's connected with a more intimate experience of unpleasantness. It takes out this struggle that usually starts unconsciously, but there is a lot of strain in our system. Fearing, planning, remembering, uh, futurizing unpleasantness, let alone current unpleasantness. So being mindfully intimate of unpleasant experiences actually will lead to a well-being that has learned to disentangle itself from automatic reactivity around unpleasantness. Buddha said this, taught his students, students practice it, got the healing from it. And this has rippled down through the centuries. My teachers were taught this, Probably was not their first instinct, but a little intuition, like maybe there's something to that. Enough to try it and then found for themselves, it really is worth the time to build a conscious relationship to Vedana. And there is a well being, and it's not tied to pleasantness. And pleasantness can come and go, but I don't notice my well being arising and passing with the, the quickness that pleasantness can visit. And there's a kind of a well-being that endured unpleasantness and knew this unpleasantness has to be breathed with. This is not an unpleasantness you solve. For example, my parents are aging and my dad just went to uh, assisted living. And it's painful. His aging, there's, there's, you can't just tell a a fantasy story. It comes with aches and pains. It comes with a shift in identity. It's hard on him, then it's hard on us, seeing him suffer. There's no end run around the fact that there are unpleasantnesses that come with life. But the well-being is not fixing it. The well-being is not numbing it. The well-being is not distracting ourselves from it. The well being isn't sinking into the despair. The well being is breathing with it to reduce the extra suffering that comes from resisting it. So you can meet the suffering that's in the experience of aging. And then that well being won't be tripped up by the truth of aging. That well being is not ensnared, it's not dependent upon an impossibility, that aging stop. That well-being is not hooked. It's not on an axis. There's an x-axis of pleasure and pleasant and neutral. And there's a y-axis of actual well-being. You, how far out you go and where you go on Veda, pleasant and pleasant and neutral, is not actually, has no impact on the well-being you're having uh, sorry, that's you can tell the physics mind there. It's, like, it's the y-axis, like, can't, can't you see it? And we will liberate our hearts and minds. Your heart and mind will be liberated from the unconscious uh, assumption that your well-being comes by producing more happiness, by having more pleasant sits, by having pleasantness, and more access to pleasantness. I still want you to have pleasantness, but there's a well-being that actually is not entangled with pleasantness. I don't want you to have unpleasantness, but you will. But you will discover there's a well-being that is not numb to unpleasantness, is not aloof from unpleasantness. It actually can breathe with unpleasantness and still find it unpleasant, still look for solutions they may or may not come. But the well-being wasn't fragile because there was unpleasantness. My, uh, I had a very strict teacher when I went to practice in Burma, and I was still a, uh, a fairly healthy 30-year-old. And then I got ill after a year of being a monk, and I've had this illness for now uh, 25 years called chronic fatigue. And uh, it's more than fatigue. It's a lot of inflammation and irritation that uh, is a part of my, it's just woven into a lot of my experience. But he trained me luckily before I got ill and held me accountable and believed that my mind could transcend its habits, where its limits were. And I had done a lot of camping. I had been in hard experiences, but he wanted to break my mind from its dependency on pleasantness, unpleasantness, and really wanted me to commit to neutrality more than anybody had believed in me up to that point. And so he held me to that training and my mind complained a lot and it made some pretty good cases why I shouldn't have to breathe with this unpleasantness. And I tried a lot of ways to get a teacher's hall pass on some of my suffering and he wouldn't budge. And what he planted was a relationship to vedna. That still took a long time to mature. But it was the fact that he planted something that allowed me to learn to breathe inside this illness I've had. And my well being has come from learning to manage the illness, some. But there's another well being that has been disentangled from whether I'm on a, a, a day of pain and exhaustion or whether I'm in a day where that pain and exhaustion has alleviated some. And what still happens, because I'm not fully awake, is I'll get a, a run of good days in a row, and unconsciously I start to take it for granted, even after 25 years. After 25 years of watching this never be reliable, my unconscious mind starts saying, I've had enough good days. I think my habits are good enough to manage this uh, illness. Maybe I could actually stretch out a little bit more and take it for granted. And that's usually where I over-ask myself and it starts to cause another uh, relapse of stress and my body speaks up very honest and telling me we've overdone it again. But that journey has actually allowed me to find these knots and breathe in them to disentangle them. So I used to do a lot of uh, knitting and crochet cause I was a uh, raised in a liberal family in the seventies. So <laughs> I was very celebrated when I learned to knit and crochet, but I used to get yarn. And if I wasn't, if I didn't put the energy into taking the yarn and balling it up, uh, it would easily get knotted. It just be pulling on the, the yarn you want. It tends to take the yarn as you bought it and tie it into a tight knot. And you could go in there and try to figure out the knot, the free end and where it needs to go through, and that takes a lot of time. And you learn what you want to do with a big ball of yarn that's in a knot is put your fingers into the center don't figure it out just put your fingers into the center and start introducing space inside the knot don't untangle it but get intimate inside the knot and see if you can wiggle space inside of it and as you as the yarn ball takes up less and less space it unravels itself like (laughs) <laughs> you don't actually have to figure it out. You want to get in there, tease the inside open, introduce more and more space, introduce space. And if you track the free ends, they start going and untying the knot. Like, I'm not sure if that's a knitter thing and you're like, duh. Or if you're like, I can't even ta- grasp what you're talking about. <laughs> if you can breathe where you've never breathed before, around something that's so neutral, you think it actually might kill you or something pleasant, but you've never, you've had to turn away from it because the attraction is so strong or you've just been lost like a moth to flame. If you can actually breathe in the yearning for the pleasantness, you're actually introducing space into the equation and intimacy into the equation around pleasant vedana and your habits will start to untangle themselves. So in some ways it's simpler than trying to get in there and trying to map it all out and figure it out. Breathe with the pleasantness, but breathe consciously with it, and you'll open your relationship to pleasantness. And a type of well-being will uh, come up, and the pleasantness can come and go. And there's a well-being left over. And trying to figure out what is that well-being that's something I'm really interested in. There's something a little bit more trustworthy about the well-being that's not dependent upon pleasantness, but didn't become spiritually aloof of pleasantness. I am just intimate with the pleasantness, but like birds, it flew and then flew away. Pleasantness, unpleasantness flew in like another flock of birds, and then it flew away. It's of its nature to be uh, impermanent. And then neutrality, it will visit. And can you say, oh, wait, neutrality, rather than spacing out here, I want to see if I can open up an intimate relationship to neutrality. That introduces space and that transforms the relationship. So just that simple breathing with will begin to untangle these knots around vedna that have been tied tight in our less conscious daily living. One last uh, insight at this point, but there's going to be many around Vedna, just like we get to know the body deeper and deeper and deeper. You'll get to know Vedna deeper and deeper and deeper. The less conscious mind thinks the pleasantness is in the object or the unpleasantness is in the object. Therefore, I get more pleasantness by... Relating to whatever I think is pleasant, so it's food or the sight of a friend or the sound of music you like. The pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the neutrality is not actually in the object, and you get to explore that. Now I admit I still think the pleasantness is in the peanut-covered M and M, and I've looked at it over and over and over, but there was a time I was given a pound of peanut M&M's and the pleasantness is not in <laughs> the M&M. Because <laughs> if it was, you would just keep eating them and that would be a secure relationship to pleasantness. But it wasn't. And you can have these aha moments, like the pleasantness is not actually in The object, the pleasantness, is in the mind's relationship to what's happening. So that's one of the ways you'll tease apart what has tied itself inside our minds, is we already think certain things are guaranteed to be pleasant, certain things are guaranteed to be unpleasant, certain things are guaranteed to be neutral. And It's actually in our nervous system that that's happening, not in our connection to the outside world. So I'll put out that breadcrumb, see for yourself if that's true. So with that said, let's turn back to the streaming nature of experience and resting in that stream. The stream is already happening, so it doesn't usually take a heroic feat to be in the stream. And every now and then ask the question, does this moment have the tone of being pleasant? This moment have the tone of being unpleasant. This moment have the tone of being unpleasant. And maybe you start to notice, wow, it's many. There are some mixtures going on of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. It's just taking interest in that and then finding it in the flow of experience.